From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As kids start school, families are all adjusting to pandemic challenges. Whether that's technologies for remote learning or in-person social distancing protocols, when students have special education needs, the picture can be even more complex. So it's always been a struggle. And then when you throw in COVID and students a lot of times needing one-on-one support, that made a complex issue even more complicated. Then the state honors two civil rights champions who helped unify a movement 40 years ago after police shot and killed two unarmed Latino men in Longmont. It's our community. We have to take action and we have to pull together. We'll talk about the police reform they were able to achieve and the work they continue today, four decades later. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Will. Schools are starting around the state, and that brings challenges for every student and family. There's technology to adjust to with remote learning and masks and social distancing protocols that come with in-person classes. When students have special education needs, the picture can be even more complex. For students with individualized education plans and services like speech therapy or physical therapy, adapting to education during the pandemic can be a real challenge. Janine Durst advocates for students with special education needs through the nonprofit ARC Adams County. She joined me for a conversation with Melanie, a Colorado mom of two boys who receive special education services. We're only sharing Melanie's first name to protect her and her son's privacy. Melanie, to start us off, can you tell us a bit about your family? Okay. My two boys are 8 and 10, and we have the joy of challenges with autism and ADHD, and they're both unique and special and amazing. And we're a very active family. We enjoy Colorado, all of the bike riding trails. We do a lot of swimming. And with COVID, we had actually done a stand-up swimming pool to help keep my boys regulated in a sensory diet. And that's been huge for them. We also have been growing a garden and it's part of the mindfulness. My son loves pumpkins and tomatoes. And so we've been growing all of their favorite fruits and vegetables and it's kind of helped keep them centered. How are the tomatoes doing this summer? They got pelted from the hail, but there's a bunch of survivors and we're making some salsa today. Ooh, oh, that sounds good. Um, So as schools choose to teach online, in person, or a mix of both this fall, it affects students differently. Your family has chosen that both of your sons will be doing a school entirely online this year. Tell us about that decision. It was a hard decision. Both boys, we asked them and gave them choice. What do you feel comfortable? And they said, we we feel more comfortable staying at home. And they said, there's no way I could wear a mask all day. We've had to adapt a lot. My children have in-home physical therapy, OT, and speech, and they've actually adapted pretty well to the online meeting through therapy care. And the therapists have actually told me that they're getting a lot more done because they're not escaping and have all these distractions in the home. So we're just trying to keep it positive. But with my son, just for an example, we had our first physical therapy in the backyard and I was watching him with a mask. He doesn't mind wearing a mask, but he's not going to be able to wear it all day long. So just for a 30 minute session, in a matter of 10 minutes, it was on his nose. It was on top of his head. He was playing with it. 
he was rolling around. It was, <laughs> he couldn't handle it. So I'm just thinking if my son has challenging following the rules in school, now with COVID, he's gonna try, but there's times he's gonna have that executive function and impulsivity is gonna take over. He's trying really hard. So tell me a little bit more about what that's meant for you, because having two sons in online school, you've decided not to go back to work this fall. Right. I'm going to be home for the boys. I'm still seeking online employment if it's available. Um, I'm taking a full course of four online classes myself while managing OT, speech, physical therapy. And we just started ABA therapy after a year wait. So I'm very excited about that. My husband and I work opposite schedules, so during the day he's asleep, but about nine o'clock I get pretty tired. (laughs) It's hard on my 10-year-old, which melts my heart. Since COVID happened, there's a lot of swearing. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It is what it is, but that's how he's coping. I'm in a mom's group, and I'm reading that I'm not the only mother that has a 10-year-old that started uh, having a lot of cussing and swear words. And he's also mentioned that he hates his life. Mm. He's never said that before. So he thinks Corona is a bunch of BS and he doesn't like it. So I can imagine it's got to be tough and it's hard as a mom. Um, I'm just trying to keep it together for my kids. That's so much to be juggling. It sounds like you are putting in so much work to make sure that they have a variety of experiences, even as they're going to online school. I don't want to pry too much into your financial situation, but I do want to give a sense of the weight of the decision that you've made not to go back into work in the school systems like you'd normally do. Was it hard to choose to live on primarily one income for the next school year? Uh, Yes, it's been. Well, it's already been a challenge before COVID between both of my boys and the amount of phone calls we received from the school to pick them up. We couldn't even work the same schedule. So this has already been our routine for last four years working opposite schedules um so we just found ways to mold and to adapt we own our home so we're lucky and we're in a situation where our payment is very low and we have taken a refinance we downsize uh and there's no vacations but we're making it a staycation so it's kind of a survival mode but it's okay we have our family we have each other our cat has helped a lot My son got an orange kitty cat when he turned nine. Oh, what's her name? Sweepy. Cute. (laughs) Janine, you're an advocate for ARC Adams County. That's a nonprofit that works for children and adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. You've actually known Melanie and her family for a while now, and you've helped advocate for her son's education. How does Melanie's story compare to other families with children who have special education needs? So I've really enjoyed listening again to your story, Melanie, because it reminds me so much of why I advocate. I'm sure you all know that the number of children that are diagnosed on the spectrum has increased tremendously. And so a lot of families have very similar stories as Melanie. Not all the families that I advocate for have children on the spectrum, but um, her story is not, I mean, even though her children are wonderfully unique, there's more and more kids that are wonderfully unique these days with very similar needs. As an advocate, I, I do my best to assist, to empower, to provide information, 
to step in when, you know, families are just at the end of their rope. They just can't go forward anymore. And there's already so much that parents are dealing with under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Students with intellectual or developmental disabilities are legally entitled to free and appropriate education. And for a lot of students, that's an individualized learning plan and sometimes special services like a one-to-one aid. How has the pandemic changed students' access to those services? When COVID hit in the springtime, schools had two weeks to figure it out. On a good day, families and schools struggle with special education issues because it's above and beyond general education. The federal government promised to fund a lot of the excess costs. They never have been able to fund it completely. So it's always been a struggle. And then when you throw in COVID and students a lot of times needing one-on-one support, that can't be provided remotely. It falls on the parent. And sometimes parents don't feel equipped or are not equipped. Sometimes kids don't like working with their parents. I can, I remember that. They don't, you know, it's, you're not my teacher. You don't tell me how to do this. Um, So that was, those are definitely pieces that um, made a complex issue even more complicated. So in the spring, it was the remote learning. And here you have parents have an individual education plan that says that you're told this is legally binding. These are the services that my child is guaranteed. All of a sudden, you're remote and parents are like, I still have this document. My child is entitled to these services. And there was, I believe, from my experience, especially in the springtime, there was no way that that schools could get it into. I mean, I'm sure there were some, but I know the families that I work with, their schools were struggling. And so now with the new year starting, I do believe we're going to be looking at a totally different ballgame. And I do think a lot of kids will receive the services they need seamlessly. And then there's students that it's going to be more of a challenge just because of the nature of how the services have to be provided. What sorts of special education services may still be difficult to provide? Physical therapy. That's hard to do remotely unless you're instructing the parent. But even so, most kids interact with the therapist a certain many times a week or a month. OT speech therapy can be hard for kids with certain disabilities, especially kids on the spectrum. They may not be able to relate to the screen. They may not be able to engage with the screen. Like I talked to a mom yesterday, it was like 45 minutes after school started. She was in tears. They'd given up already because her son, you know, they were having, which again, I'm not putting down the model. They were having a Zoom meeting and there's all these little faces and, you know, kids are, you know, excited as can be. And it was such an overwhelming to her son. He could not, his because of his sensory issues, he couldn't tolerate it. Some kids perseverate on the screen. So they may be on this. I have another family whose child, once he interacts, is doing something on the screen. He does not want to get off. Once he's off, he has a meltdown for a very long time. So, I mean, there's families that have to keep their kids away from screen time because it just doesn't work well for them. And so that's, what do you do?
Melanie, Janine said the pandemic was disruptive for many students who have individualized education plans. What was your family's experience? It's a little complicated. They did make progress towards their goals, yes. But I believe with COVID, it slowed things down and just they weren't learning new curriculum. They were learning curriculum that they had already gone over. It was more focusing on social emotional Uh, But as far as OT and speech, there was a flyer put up on a Google class of going over TH and a couple other things. And um, I just don't feel that was the same. I was advocating to see if I can get at least a one-to-one speech instruction. But she was informed the district had not approved that at the time. Mm. And what does that look like going into the fall? We start September 1st, so it's going to be all a new experience for me. Uh, there's communication coming out. I don't clearly understand the schedule, but honestly, I'm not going to um, be overwhelmed with it at this point. I'm. If there's anything that needs adjusting, then of course I'm going to be emailing the IEP team on what adjustments that we'll need to make to help meet his needs. So the process is going to be starting soon. And you've dealt with tough situations even before COVID-19 hit advocating for your kids' education. That's part of why you've asked us not to share your last name. So it sounds like you have some tempered optimism about the next year. I would say that I advocate for my children and look out for the best interest and I'll make sure that things are ethical and followed. And if they're not, and I have, I guess, that mama bear feeling, you trust your intuitions and when something doesn't feel right, normally is not right. That's the main thing. It's just all about the children and we're investing in them. And that's a gift to be able to give back to our children and Some children just learn differently and need to have teachers that can adjust to teaching the ways they learn. And do you have specific concerns for your son's learning throughout the pandemic, especially in the ways that the schools that they're even going to online are handling their education? Uh, I have faith they're trying to do the best thing they can for the children. I think it's overwhelming and they're figuring it out themselves. I'm just going to be engaged and we're going to be a team um, and collaborating together and see what works for um, my son. And my son advocates pretty well for himself and says what works for him and what doesn't. It's going to be a big balance because I don't feel learning on the screen for too long is the best, but at this point, the safest for us. And I'm going to think outside the box to get his social emotional needs. Um, Just actually by riding his bike around the block, he met a boy that lives behind us and he was like so excited. And to hear him tell me he likes his life and to get up at 6.30 in the morning to go to the skate park and just the wind in his hair. He's like, I love my life. And to find the little joys and when, and right now I think is, I want to be careful not to over push my son and let him kind of lead his learning because right now um, there's a lot of emotions on with COVID. So I'm just going to um, stay in communication and be supportive and 
make sure that we're all the same team and doing what helps my son. Janine, what advice do you have for other families advocating for their kids with special education needs? Every school district seems to be in a different place starting out the school year. They're on a different page. Some are remote, some are in person, some are hybrid. And so whether or not your child's school is starting online or in person, there's a good chance at some point during the school year, they're going to have to go to remote or online because of a COVID outbreak. We hope not, but there's good reason to think that that's going to happen. And so schools need to be planning, even if they're not starting remote, they need to be planning for if they do need to go to remote. And so if your child is receiving special education services, I recommend that you ask the school, okay, if when, when we do remote, what are my child services going to look like? So services are written up on an individual education plan. And sometimes the remote or online setting prevents those services being provided effectively. So I recommend to any family whose child does receive special ed services, just ask the school, do you have a plan? If they say, no, we don't think your child needs a plan, then they're basically saying we can implement their services just as they are written. And then what I would recommend is the family say, okay, great, can you give me that in writing? Just let me know what that's going to look like. So that would be my um, recommendation to all families, even if your child is starting in person, because that may not last the whole school year. Um, The Colorado Department of Education, which truly is a guidance agency, They are recommending a formal contingency learning plan be written. It's only a recommendation, but it's a good tool. If, let's see, if your child's district is offering in-person services and your family is opting for those, um, for that choice, um, I think there's questions that you need to be asking your, you need to be contacting the school and asking them any questions that you might have. Um, It's okay to say, what's your policy on masks? My child doesn't like to wear a mask. Is that going to exclude them? Um, Most districts do recognize that um, young children especially or kids with special needs struggle with masks. And so that's not, um, it's not a deal breaker, but a lot of families are afraid. Like I can't send my child to school because he won't keep a mask on. So it's important to ask that question. Um, I think schools are providing a lot of information about what the day will look like to reassure families, what kind of precautions they're taking. And in the process, keep in mind, this is new for everybody. And if you think of a typical school year, it never goes smoothly. And now throw in COVID and it's it's going to be a rocky road, even though everybody is really working hard. Um, But that doesn't mean don't go ahead and ask what you need to because the bottom line is your child's safety. And I would just say that as a parent, you are your child's best advocate and your voice is powerful. Well, I just want to thank you both so much for sharing your stories. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. That's Janine Durst, an advocate with nonprofit Arc Adams County for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, and Melanie, a Colorado mom of a fifth grader who is on the autism spectrum and a third grader with ADHD. Her boys start school this week, and her fifth grader had this to say to other kids as they begin classes. 
staying on board and have a great uh, school year. We hope you have a great school year, too. Thousands of Colorado students still don't have reliable internet to learn from home. Educators and internet advocates recently called on telecom companies and lawmakers to help fix the problem. Here's CPR's education reporter, Jenny Brundine. Toby Melster says he's asked businesses to donate computers and hotspots for students, but... It's frustrating. Melster is superintendent of the Centennial School District in San Luis, Colorado. At any given point in time, I have approximately 30% of my student population that we see falling behind. And they're falling behind because they don't have that internet connectivity. The shift to remote learning has exposed a deep digital divide between Colorado students. A new study by Marzano Research shows only a quarter of Colorado's 112 rural school districts have adequate internet. But lack of internet is not just a rural problem. Some low-income neighborhoods in cities have spotty coverage, too. Denver School Superintendent Susana Cordova says many students are trying to use their phones as hotspots. We know that all data plans are not equal, and it has become clear that one hotspot on a limited data plan is not enough for reliable internet access, particularly in homes with more than two people. At a meeting Wednesday, educators and families told lawmakers and internet providers they are struggling. Marilyn Winokur of Coloradans for the Common Good says the coalition is calling for affordable and universal internet, faster download and upload speeds, and higher data caps. There are just needs all over the place. Education officials say piecemeal solutions won't work. They called on Colorado's U.S. senators to address the issue in the next recovery package. On Wednesday, Comcast, Verizon, and T-Mobile committed to start working with the coalition to boost coverage. T-Mobile's Brent Cooper warned there are hurdles. Sometimes we're limited by a city that's saying, well, you can't put up a cell site there. The reality is we need to put up a really big cell site in order to cover a big area. In the meantime, local elected officials are trying to clear hurdles. Denver voters will consider a ballot initiative to exempt the city from a state law that prevents local governments from investing in broadband services and infrastructure. In the meantime, educators worry that bad internet connections will simply cause more students to tune out of learning altogether. Jenny Brandine, CPR News. When we come back, a conversation with two Latino civil rights champions who fought for and achieved police reform in Longmont 40 years ago. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Early on in the protests for racial justice, Colorado Matters got reading recommendations to better understand this moment in America. And now we invite you to read one of those books with us. The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter chronicles this idea how whiteness is an artificial thing as well. Pick up the book, The History of White People, then join us for a live video chat with the author, September 22nd. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. On August 14, 1980, two unarmed young Latino men were shot and killed by police in Longmont. Their deaths galvanized Longmont's Latino community, which demanded police reform and accountability. In the wake of the killings, Victor Vela and Marta Moreno helped create a civil rights and social justice organization called El Comité that succeeded in getting the reforms it sought, which is still working today to improve the lives of Latinos in the Longmont community. Earlier this month, exactly 40 years after the killings, Governor Polis declared August 14, 2020 as Victor Elvela and Marta Moreno Day in Colorado. 
Martha, welcome to the program. Thank you. And Victor, welcome to you too. Same here, thank you. Victor, you may be more accustomed to listening to CPR than being a guest on it. Your son is CPR News hosted reporter Vic Vela Jr. That guy's still working there? <laughs> last I checked, last I heard on the weekend. <laughs> okay. That's what yeah, got into this, huh? <laughs> no, the, what got y'all into this is having a day named after you. So, Victor, let's talk about that. The two men killed by police in Longmont were brothers-in-law Juan Luis Garcia and Jeff Cordova, who were friends and family called Beaver. How did you first hear about their killings? Well, the killings happened on a Saturday. Cordova's brother was getting married. And uh, I wasn't aware of it that night. And I went to work Monday, and Mrs. Cordova, Ramona, her name is, she called. And, you know, she was crying on the phone. And she finally said that uh, her son, Bieber, was shot and killed by police. And also Juan Garcia. And I said, I was shocked. I said, what do you mean Bieber was killed? Because we've known the Cordovas and Garcia's families. Uh, you know, they've been here forever. We've been here forever. And so I was shocked. And she's, they didn't know what to do. They were, they were just lost, confused, crying, everything. And asked if I could uh, go down and maybe help them out and see what we could do. I said, sure. So after work, I went down there and met with the both families. And of course, it was it was a really tragic to walk in there and see how they was crying and, you know, because of what happened. So I agreed to uh, help them out, you know, to see what I could do. I know they wanted to address the police department and see what's going to happen and what ha- exactly what happened and so on. So then I, uh, when I left, I got a couple people I knew to uh, see if they would be willing to help me uh, organize and get some members on board that had some knowledge of uh, with, with the city government. And so then Martha, I knew Marino, for example, she was involved in helping uh, immigration and so on. And she asked to come on. I said, sure. And uh, so then there was a total of eight of us that I got a hold of. We all met at my house originally, and, and we just discussed what we're gonna, how we're gonna move forward with this. We wanted to definitely meet with the mayor and the, the police chief at the time. The mayor was uh, Mayor Askey, and the police chief was uh, Ed Camp, and then of course city council members. And so then one of the members uh, who was uh, Ed Tafoya, who was no longer with us, has passed since then. Uh, he says, "Well, what are we gonna call our group?" And uh, so then Tony says, suggested, well, you know, we're the committee. We're a committee, so why don't we just say El Comité, which means that in Spanish. And I said, yeah, that's fine. You know, let's go with that. So that's how we adopted the name El Comité. Everybody on there agreed with that. And so then uh, we proceeded to uh, make arrangements to meet with the city council, mayor, police chief at St. John's Catholic Church in the basement. And that basement... Audrey was just full of angry, 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 shocked, upset Latino families, young kids, couldn't believe what happened. And so, yeah, it was tense, tense moments down, mm. moments in that basement. And Martha, you helped create this citizens group, El Comité. How did it channel that anger and the pain in the Latino community into action? Well, like we have a role, we believe in without actions, there are no miracles. Sin acción, no hay milagros. Si quieres paz, lucha por la justicia. If you want peace, work for justice. And that's what we work on, you know. If we wanted peace, we had to take some action and go about 
changing, you know, communicating and understanding of our Latino, Mexicano, our immigrant, our the community of Longman, Boulder County, and the surrounding areas. Because we were saying we work with the young, the old, the restless, the in-between, and even the dead. We have a diverse population here in Longman. People from Mexico, Guatemala, Salvadoreños, Guatemaltecos, Mexicanos, and from, you know, state to state, you know. So that time was important to pull together. Even the church, we had a priest that walked with us one time when we went to city council. We involved the church because we felt the church and the community as a whole needed to come together. You know, and since so many, so many of our gente came in, coming together. We had outsiders, actually, that wanted to come in, you know, and, and, and would have happened what Ferguson or others happened. We said, Thanks, but no thanks. This is our community. We will deal with it ourselves. We don't want outsiders. If you, we, we want your help, we'll call you. Ahorita, no. Right now, no. We need to address it ourselves. And the board member, Tony Tafoya, Ed Rich Mendez, Frida Garcia, uh, Mark Rodriguez, Ed Navarro, Esther Blason, uh, Rich Latrup, you know, those folks were great. We have Three that have passed, Ed Navarro, Tony Tafoya, and Rich Mendez, that have passed, you know. And those of us also that are left here are still around, you know. Uh, They made the connections with the Department of Justice and brought an outside uh, CLIDA program to do the internal investigation of our police department. This was heard Mm -hmm. all over, all over the country. It seems like police got more training because the officers were rookies, you know, and they needed more, more training and more understanding of our community to become culturally competent and be more trained because they were they were rookies they were very very under trained we have to pull the community it's our community we have to take action and we have to pull together so it sounds like self-determination was a really important thing here yes yes Victor, I know you've called these shootings a turning point for the Longmont Latino community that had suffered discrimination for decades. Let's back up and tell us a little bit about the situation surrounding the shootings and how it was a call to action. I was born and raised in this town, and uh, I've, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and that, that shooting was the ugly. But, yes, there was some discrimination back in the day. There was, you know... A little before my time, there were signs, you know, in restaurants here saying no dogs or Mexicans allowed. The KK Klan was uh, at a group here that was well known, and uh, yeah, it, it was it was tough, you know, growing up. Uh, I had a lot of good, you know, a lot of good, uh, you know, white people. You know, I I've coached this town for 39 years, baseball and football, and so I coached, you know, uh, different uh, colors of people. So. But yes, there was there was hate. There was a lot of discrimination, and then when the shootings, uh, and there was no trust, uh, to be honest, uh, with right. the police department before the shootings, you know. And then when the shootings happened, and when we found out that rookie that shot and killed the two young men, he was on the police force for three months, and no hardly any training. They put him out in the street, and then. Uh, he was had a three fifty seven Magnum, which was illegal, you know, to carry. And uh and was, yeah, so when those shootings happened and then with the unsettled with the police department, it was it was uh that I think that right there opened a lot of people's eyes. You know, to be honest, all I had to do was just stand up and say, you know, we're not getting anywhere, Mayor. 
if I would have walked out of that meeting with the mayor and everything and, and the other members followed me, God knows what would have happened because there was that much tense there. But I really believe after all was said and done and all the meetings that uh, we had with the mayor, city council, and, and the police chief, Ed Camp, and all, I want to give a, a big shout-out to Ed Camp, who at that time, like yeah. I said, police officer, he did a great job. He worked with us. He understood you know, what we were trying to accomplish, and he wasn't, you know, most of our demands were met, not all of them, but most of them were met, and I think after that, it's made Longmont a better a better place for the Latino community to, to live in and not feel so threatened or to have to look over their shoulder to see if, if they're being followed or for whatever reason. So I really believe that, uh, you know, you hate to say this, but, you know, sometimes you say, bad things, what good things come out of it. Well, unfortunately, it took two Latino kids to lose their life for good things to come out of this in the long run, not only with the Latino community, but the whole community in Longmont as a whole. And you've mentioned those demands. On August 27th, 1980, 12 El Comité members presented a list of demands to the City Council in your first negotiation session. The Longmont Times call said the demands were specific and the responses favorable. El Comité demanded police ride-alongs, a hotline for people to call with complaints about police behavior, polygraph tests for police, and other reforms. The newspaper said the city's response was favorable, but you do have a different recollection about the tone of that meeting. Well, Yes, it was, I think initially, I believe the city people were, I guess maybe the word is surprised that we were asking for so much demands at one time. That uh, And I think the other thing is they really felt, personally, I think they felt guilty. You know, they did come out and say it. I think they knew that they were in the wrong, especially with the training, and they were surprised about the ride-along, you know, when we suggested that, so... No, it it, uh, it it took it by surprise that the demands that we asked for, I don't know, was, was it just took it by surprise, I think. And Marta, you mentioned that this got national attention. Very soon after the killings, the U.S. Department of Justice took an interest in the case. On September 23, 1980, El Comité and the city of Longmont signed a declaration of understanding brokered by the Justice Department that made official the reforms that El Comité demanded. And the declaration states the parties respectfully pledged to foster the greater trust between citizens of the Longmont Hispanic community, the elected representatives, and the employees of the city, particularly those serving as police officers. Martha, that document of understanding was voted on unanimously by the city council. This was a big victory for El Comité, right? Oh, yeah. And what's important, because we needed to build trust and respect, it was a really workable partnership, yeah. And and, and these recommendations that they agreed with the ombudsman, you know, uh, community relations office, which still is there, has changed somewhat, you know, but, and we have now, we've been having, you know, I'm, I have retired. I'm no longer there since July the 8th, yeah. But we were having our officers, new officers, I used to call them new kids on the block, to let them know, uh, we gave them an orientation. They were there, you know, to say, you're here to do the law enforcement. We're here to be, do the social justice, you know. People will be calling us, coming to us, give them a ticket, you didn't understand. You heard the other one that speaks the language, you didn't hear the other one. So we're going to be kind of the watchdogs. When we smell, we bark. 
in Spanish we say, no hay mal que por bien no venga. There's not a bad that a good comes out of it. You know, unfortunately, it took the lives of this young man that helped to bring together this community. We're not saying it doesn't, it's not happening in the race and discrimination anymore. There is some. So that's where we need to be as watchdogs and take over or address those situations within the city, within the social service, with all the service providers that need to comply, even the churches. Yeah. And it was, it was an understanding, you know, right along so we could build that, that community. And it started, you know, uh, the right along. And I think it's, it uh, even went into the schools, you know, learning how law enforcement works and how the community works and how we can work together, you know, by having the client comply into an understanding the law. You know, I used to say to the clients, you play, you pay, you know, but then the officers too. You know, you need to understand that you do not speak the language, but you need to understand that this is how the, the client feels. And in order to feel trust on them, you know, and depend on them, they have to open themselves up and allow that to happen. So it's been 40 years that you've been a part of El Comité, Marta, and you just retired. And you said that it is still a watchdog. Tell me about some of the ways that El Comité has made a difference in the four decades that you've worked there, even beyond just that initial document of understanding. I tell the youth, you're not our future. You are right now. And we are the youth with experience. You are going to learn from us because where you are going, you're getting involved, you know, we are already coming back. We know where we've been and you will learn from us. So the experience that I've gone through all those 40 years, how to communicate with, with the out communities to help the people become self-sufficient and, and uh, empower them to do what it's because by them learning, they learn and can help the other ones, you know, because you, they, they need to learn how to navigate a system that they don't know. We have some of our immigrants that, that have no idea, you know, so, and language is a barrier. We get them to get into English classes, uh, become U.S. citizens, and even uh, representatives, you know, um, mayors or city council, or state representatives, whatever. We put them in, we vote for them. Hey, you have to be accountable. We put you there. You have to answer to that because they don't know. They're out there passing bills, whatever. They don't know what's going on in the community. So we need to educate them, too, as to what's going on in this community. Mm-hmm. What are the changes that we need? Uh, better pay, housing, affordable housing, climate change, and you name it. You know, so me and Victor, even though we're in our ages of 70, I'm 74, and Victor, you're what, 70s, what? We're still kicking. We're still, we're still going to be on top. 70, 77. Yes, sir. All these are goodies. Yeah. Nice. I want to go back to what you said about immigration, because El Comité adopted a peaceful protest model. And in recent years, we've seen backlash against immigrants and people of color. Victor, does this backlash make El Comité more relevant than ever? Oh, yes, especially now. And if I may say real quick, I'd like to give a shout out to Martha again. You know, 40 years altogether. Can you imagine how many how many families she's impacted and helped? In those 40 years, how many of us can say we've been on one job for 40 years? And, uh, you know, I know she had some ups and downs with, with city people, but you know what? She stuck to her guns and she's a fighter and she helped a lot of people. So I want to give a shout out to that. And one other thing, if I may, if somehow we could make sure that the original founding members, 
And I like to mention their names because Martha and I couldn't have did that by ourselves. No way in heck. And I would like to give a shout-out to Rich Lathrop, Richard Mendez, Frida Garcia, Esther Brazon, Ed Navarro, Tony Tafoya, and Richard Mendez. We were the original board members, and without their help, there's no way could I have done that when the families asked me to. But I just want to give a big shout-out to them because it took more than one or two of us to make the changes that we did. Now, to get back to your question, <laughs> sorry about that. I think there should be more El Comites around, personally, in other cities where there's a lot of discrimination. And, you know, what's making it harder now, I believe that uh, the man in the White House now, when he became president, that a lot of people come out from the what I call the woodworks, and now they got a reason to do what they're doing, and, and uh, all that hate's coming out. And I think it, it's a... You know, it's affecting not only the blacks, but the Latino community, Asian, you name it. It's uh, it's not good. It seems like we're taking a step backwards here like the last three and a half years. If there was more El Comité, more people like Martha, for example, to uh, carry on and, and help immigrations, then yes, uh, they, we need more of them around. And this summer has also seen a reckoning with racial injustice and police brutality, specifically against black people. Martha, how is El Comité a part of recent calls for police reform? We're here to help them to hold all those accountable for those things that are happening. If, if we need uh, more police training or cultural competence and understanding, then that, that's what we need. And that's why we're here to help the commissioners, the city council who make the decision and our law enforcement that they need to realize, you know, because we need to hire even local, local people that have been trying to get into our law enforcement and have not been hired. Why? You know, they're from here, from the barrio, they know, you know, and they haven't, you know. They bring people from Chicago, from Chicago, whatever. No, 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 no. We have some here already that need to be part of, to be feel part of it, you know, and, 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 and it and it. And it just needs to happen because it's our right, our responsibility, and our obligation, everybody, not us, to do, to make things happen. If I may add something on that, you know, I talked to the retired police chief. He retired here uh, about a month ago. had a conversation with him, and I asked him, you know, the, first of all, the population in Longmont alone is uh, 32 to 34 percent Latinos, okay? And I asked him, I says, well, what is the percentage of Latinos on your police force? And he kind of hesitated for a while and says, well, to be honest, you know, we were working on that. We want to be a part of any, from here on out, any hiring process. We want to be able to interview upcoming uh, new police officers. And I agree with Martha. It would be great if we could have them locally because they know the community. You bring somebody from the outside, it takes them about a year to get uh, to recognize or understand the culture here in Longmont versus somebody that's been here. So well, we're going to make sure that we're going to be a big part of that hiring process, uh, at least get our two cents worth in there. And the proclamation Governor Polis issued declaring August 14th, 2020, a day named in honor of each of you, says El Comité stands for justice within the city of Longmont and facilitates communication and understanding within the community to improve social justice, education, and economic status for Latinos. Marta, tell me about your reaction. 
Well, and that's what we're supposed to stand for, right? And it, it's not happening, it needs to happen. You know, uh, making sure the economic gets good, better here, so people can stay here. You know, it's unfortunate that Boulder County has become kind of expensive, that many people cannot afford. You know, afford why? Because the wages that are being paid are very low, you know? They have to go elsewhere to get something affordable. And it needs to grow, it needs to get better, but we need to be included. You know, our our people of color has to be included in the changes of this economic and and and, and the social justice that they need to be part of. You know, uh, like we say, one piece you work for justice. You want sin acción no milagro. If we don't act, then we're not going to have miracles. We're not going to get anything just by talking, talking. You, you, you. No, it's not by you, yo, yo, yo. It's all of us, all of us. And there will be jealousy, resentment, whatever, and there's no need to. You know, we can all work together, you know, and, uh, and that's what we need. I also have to wonder, how did it feel to find out that there is a day named in your honor? Victor. Oh, there, Victor. You tell him. I was shocked. I was yes. shocked. You know, speaking for myself, and I'm sure Martha's the same way, you know, when we get involved in stuff like that, we don't do it to get recognized. Right. You know, I think we were just we were just put on this earth to to help other others, you know, in need and so on. That's just in our our mo, I guess. But yeah, it was a shock. There's thousands of other people out there that deserve to be recognized like this. But I'm shocked and honored. You know, it is an honor to to be recognized by the state of Colorado, the governor, and then we was also recognized from our city council here in Longmont. They give us a proclamation also, and that was an honor. You know, like, again, I'll repeat, you know, we don't do it, or I don't do it just, to, you know, to be recognized or walk right. around with a big head, you know. When when Victor called me, I said, say, what, Victor, are you sure? Who's doing this? How do they know? And and we actually do know, Paulus has come down here, Jonathan Singer, Michael Foote, and all the politicians, because we get involved, we, we get to for them to know this is who we are, you know. So we're going to be looking out at you, you know. So it's nice to see that they also notice and recognize. It's like Victor said, like I said all the time, we don't do this to be honored and 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 recognized and glorified. No, 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 no. That's not what I am about, and I'm sure Victor's not. No, we're here to help each other. We have the love, we have the passion and understanding, and it's good that people have that. You know, in response, and when you when you help somebody and succeed, or whatever, it it not not gives you but glorification of that you're doing the right thing because it's our right, our responsibility, and our obligation as a community that we need to work with each other. Can I ask something? Of course. You know, uh, when I called Martha after I found out, and I called Martha and told her about it, well, my daughter was happened to be here with the proclamation that they made a copy of. And my daughter was reading the proclamation to Martha. What just so happened, Martha's son from Oklahoma and his family was visiting Martha. And then her daughter, who lives here in Lama, was there visiting her brother and so on and their husband. So my daughter was reading the proclamation. And to show you how surprised Martha was, her whole, herself and her family, we could hear them crying on the other line. <laughs> they were happy, happy and surprised. And to be honest, I had some tears too when it was reading off to me. I I couldn't believe it, you know. So yeah, it was it was a great honor. It was really a great honor. Well, Martha and Victor, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for thank you. for having us, inviting us to be on your program, and 
You guys be safe and careful out there. Yes, and we want to tell people that it's not just us. They can also make a difference. And we are all here. God put us here to make that difference. And if it's not us, then who? And if it's not today, then when? We need to pull together, and everybody can make a difference. Marta Moreno and Victor Vela Sr. are two co-founders of El Comité, a social justice organization founded 40 years ago in Longmont to advocate for Latinos and immigrants. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.